Well, this will be a fun episode because this is the first time a guest has returned. Hello. Carl Cassia is back to talk more translation. And further nonsense. Hello. Well, as I often say, this is a podcast, so you have to have the nonsense in there or else it's not a podcast. I don't really listen to that many of them. I mean, most of the ones that I do listen to are not like things that I actually like listen to because I'm interested in them. I listen to them for like other reasons, like because I find them politically troubling or they're other, some other form of research. Um, so I expect a high nonsense factor in something like that, particularly like the more conspiratorial they get, the more flim flam you're likely to find, which is kind of the whole point, I think. You know, there's such an astonishing variety of them now that like, you know, there must be serious content inflation like there is with anything else, I suppose. Yeah, there's a lot now where it's just like two friends kind of bullshitting for an hour. And usually there's like a pretext of like one or two news stories. But when you actually listen, no one knows what the news story actually I saw some genius level tweet the other day about expressing like astonished disbelief that people pay money to go watch podcasters talk on stage. And it was very like appropriately, it made the whole thing seem as appropriately surreal as it in fact is. Yeah, I like one of the bleakest images you could imagine is going to see Pod Save America live. The very, like the very particularly that podcast, which I've only consumed like third hand, like when people make videos or audio clips about how they're outraged about something that was said on Pod Save America. That's the only time I really ever consume it. So, you know, I don't know, like, they could be, like, sort of just boring and not completely insane much of the time. But um, everything I've seen from them has just been extremely breathtakingly centrist in a lot of, like, really interesting ways. Yeah, I I feel like um, centrists can't make good podcasts because they don't want to do flim-flam and they don't want to bullshit and they want to tell us facts. And it's like, all those things don't belong... You, that you, you're missing the whole point of the podcast well and then you get other ones like you know from brooklyn or wherever uh where they are entirely flim flam and they've just sort of developed a thing where they call that politics i'm not much convinced by that either really like yeah i mean oof. yeah that's that's a, it's it's depressing i've listened to a few of them and it's just like guys what are you what are you doing this is this isn't it it does seem to have sort of taken a the, the whole project of sort of like socialist leaning Brooklyn podcast seems to have taken like a weird downturn, more or less all at the same time. Uh, you know, I don't really have any like unified theories about why that would be, but it does sort of seem like the demands of content production eventually revealed what was really going on there, um, rather than having it be sort of artfully concealed by, you know, the early episodes were at least they were. It was weird to listen to the early episodes of, particularly of Chapo, and be like, you know, aware that this was being considered to be like socialism because it was like overwhelmingly just like about electoral politics, and what socialism there was was like really titular and not very like well analyzed or fleshed out, and that never really changed so much. But at a certain point, the like the shit posting just seems to have taken over completely, and come to dominate the entire like process yeah exactly i mean it it just seems at this point like uh, a lot of these podcasts are just repeating themselves unlike this glorious podcast which is constantly covering new ground 
including translation. Yay! Uh, yeah, it's a translation is a mess, uh, as we have discussed privately. Yeah, well, I think like a good, like a good introduction to the mess of translation is probably like the career of Roberto Bolaño, the very popular, I guess, novelist, technically. Yeah, I think novel writer, novelist. You know, certainly he's not especially in the english-speaking world not as his poems aren't generally as well considered as i kind of wish they were because i think they're actually quite fine poems but uh largely known internationally arguably as a as a novelist yeah and i mean what's well i guess what what's really interesting about that since this is a poetry podcast is this is something trend wanted me to ask you was like why do you think like the infrarealist poetry is so lowly regarded because when i when i read it especially when you consider you know it was written in the 70s it's really it's really in line with a lot of stuff that was going on whether it's you know the situationists or other or the movements going on in central and south america i mean i think that there's a number of things a number of things going on that affect the the stock in which infrarealist poetry is, is sort of generally held I, you know the you know, I just posted that essay that I sent you on my own blog, which is mazeghostblogspot.com. Uh, there's an essay up that I wrote 10 or so years ago as an intro to some translations of Mario Santiago. And I wound up never using it, but the introductory essay is a pretty good, like, sort of, this is the guy, this is what his stuff was like, here's the story kind of essay. So that's, you know, up and kind of being seen right now for the first time ever. And... One of the points that is made in that essay that I think is relevant here is the fact that they were extremely uh, un unpopular people in Mexico City amongst the literati of their time and place to whom they had an attitude that was openly and basically totally hostile. Um, especially in the period around the mid-70s, like, you know, 73 to 79 or so. Um, they disrupted a lot of readings and they talked a lot of shit and they, you know, their entire aesthetics was essentially based on this overt rejection of what they referred to as official culture. Um, and, you know, they were unpopular as a result of it. So, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of critical work being done on them in Mexico at the time, um, largely for that reason. And really that may have never changed because the, the thing that the only reason we're sitting here talking about this right now is because Roberto wrote The Savage Detectives, basically. And that's fucked up by itself. Um, and, you know, as the essay that I wrote, it sort of talks about the people in Mexico who were part of that scene are aware of that and they're not very happy about it either, um, as one can imagine. But, like, you know, Roberto's emergence as a writer of the kind of importance that he was required this period of Mexican literary history to get looked at more closely again um, and without that, it probably never—you probably never would have heard any of these people. They probably just would have been shoved in the memory hole, um, because largely because they were as uncivilized and because their aesthetics were—they weren't just like rude to Octavio Paz. They had an aesthetics that were more or less diametrically opposed to that kind of writing in general, and um, they were really hostile to the culture of poetry as well. They didn't really do a lot of publishing or hanging out or like most of the things that were going on in that day and age are the same things that they were doing now and these guys were mostly like r reading to each other in their apartments and in restaurants and in bars and things like that they were pretty pretty much just blacklisted right and i mean what's interesting about this in the context in our context now is like we said bolaño has hit it big um 
there's an essay you wrote in um your magazine calc which is like a which was a literary translation magazine where you describe when the savage detectives first hit the market in like 2008 it would have been i think maybe 2007 i'm i might be botching the date a bit but yeah and when that when that hit you basically described like okay you wanted to you really wanted to read the book but you didn't have the money to pay for it so you went to you know barnes and noble intending to steal it and you know you justified this by saying well bologna would have approved and he would have but the book was so successful that there were no copies to steal it. It sold out. That was true all over town. And I was living in New York a few years later when 2666 was released right before Christmas time. And there were just stacks and stacks and stacks of that book all over New York City. And nearly all of them sold. Um, you know, the amount of marketing muscle that was put into moving those two large books was like really kind of an impressive thing to see. And the, you know, especially for 2666, which is a completely, insanely bleak book, to sell as well as it did around Christmas time is pretty funny. Um, but the, I beg your pardon, the the sales that Bologna reached, like, it got really crazy really quickly, even, like, in non-translation terms. Like, he was outselling pretty much anything that had happened for quite a number of years prior to that. Yeah, and it was, and I mean, what's what's like looking back at that now? It's like it was so wild watching that that sort of Bolaño moment crest crest like that because you know with like Ferrante and Nausgaard, they're just writing series, and and you know we're waiting for each book to come out. But with Bolaño, it was first we had you know um, by night in Chile, then we had the Savage Detectives, and like these are like building up, and then finally a few years later we get the biggest work like you said 2666 and it's just like every time it just the Bologna level the Bologna level is just dialed up to 11. I mean they, you know they did a good job and I don't think that it was like really a single person who can be like said to have done this really because you're talking about a lot like a long period of time and there were several major like pieces involved Farrar being one the Wiley Agency being one New Directions being one uh, the various translators involved in the estate all sort of cooperated in creating this marketing environment in which there was like this urgency to discuss it and to own, to buy it and to own it and to review it and to discuss, you know, and to talk about it. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting. I sort of stepped into it sideways around 2007. I got assigned one of his books, uh, Amulet specifically to review by a magazine that I worked for. It came in the mail and I read it and I reviewed it. And in the review, I'm sort of like, I don't really know what this is doing. And then all of a sudden, it got extremely good and then ended. It's apparently got some something to do with this guy's other books that some of which are coming out soon. So I don't know. I'll probably read those. Is basically the whole review. Um, so like from that point, watching the whole thing unfold um, was extremely strange because it's really difficult to imagine that circus being put on for any other person really american or otherwise there was a sort of bologna hit this sweet spot of like literary marketing that made it like extremely viable uh in terms of being just a commodity and you know it got to a point where the texts were basically being treated as such and it was sort of unpleasant yeah, I mean, there, and this was widely discussed in the in the press at the time. The backroom dealings in order to get the Bolaño uh, manuscripts from the smaller press, New Directions, which 
traditionally does a lot of translation and sort of um, this kind of thing and ending up with, I think, FSG, which is, you know, one of the big presses. And there was, you know, there was a, a tremendous amount of, of drama in the press about how that happened and all the stuff, deals that were cut and who got assigned translations. I mean, I remember it at the time. And I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things that's interesting, one of the things that's really interesting looking back on all that is there was, you know, like I'm, like we're saying, there's this tremendous amount of hype and like no one goes and really translates the people who were part of the scene that makes up the Savage Detectives and his wider literary works. Well, I mean, you know, the I think that for to a certain extent, it was sort of initially thought that the it was essentially made up. You know, I think news that these were all based on like very real events and people was a little slow to reach the reader uh, compared to like some of the hype that traveled really quickly. Um, that I mean, that news was out there, but if you weren't reading Francisco Goldman in the New York New York Review of Books or whatever, you, you wouldn't necessarily get it uh, secondhand at, during during a certain period there. So, you know, like well, the first time I got a hold of anybody who was involved in with inforealism was probably early two thousand eight, and they had a website and it had a contact like tab. So I just sent them an email. Um, and there were tons and tons and tons of poems on their website, so I just started playing with them and translating them. I was not, you know, this is sort of the stuff that I started translating, like, to play with, more or less. And it wasn't, like, a super serious literary pursuit at, at the beginning. Um, and, you know, like, they had had a few inquiries here and there, but, like, nothing particularly serious, you know. And for most of them, the, the hubbub over the Savage Detectives happened when it came out in Spanish, when Roberto was alive, and he won all these awards for it. You know, and so it, for it to be like sort of coming back around later, a few years after Roberto had died, was like kind of annoying, but also kind of distant because it was happening in the English-speaking world, and most of them weren't that plugged into it, and that was kind of the end of it. And I made like sort of reasonable friends with a couple of people who I stayed in touch with for quite a few years after that. Um, you know, but most of the rest of them were just sort of hanging out, like you know, and they were sort of like, "Oh, that book came out. Okay, yeah, whatever. Um, sure, you can translate my poems. Fine. Let me know if you need anything. See ya." Yeah, and, and basically, as a result, it took, you know, I, I think the first translation of uh, an infrarealist besides Bologna to come out in English, at least in America, was probably five or six years after the Savage Detectives had actually come out. And a lot of the hype had, you know, that would have placed it after um, 2666 had finally been translated into English. And the hype was sort of starting to die down as we got into Nausgaard and Ferrante. Yeah, you know, I I checked out pretty much of like translation as a business at some point around 2011 or 12. Um and you know, didn't really pay that much attention to it after that. But certainly like there were you know, there were manuscripts floating around. You know, I like in my own case, like I you know, I didn't really push super hard to publish any of the stuff that I was working on, mostly because I was working on little bits and pieces of things here and there. I had a manuscript of Mario Santiago stuff that got caught up in uh, discussions over rights, uh, which is a very normal thing in the translation game. Um, and at a certain point, I just sort of walked away from it and didn't continue to pursue it anymore. Um, you know, some of the other stuff was like not... It was... 
for a while it was particularly easy to get people to look at stuff because of the Bologna connection, but over time that sort of faded and it got to the point where the, you know, in, in lieu of or, you know, in the lack of any sort of more coherent critical body of literature, like sort of citing inferrealism as particularly important, all you had was this random or that random poet who like you sort of had to explain third hand or whatever and it was really difficult to show up with translations of poems and also have to sit there and play literary historian just to get a reading of the manuscript for example um so yeah the at some point there was discussion of a of a infrarealist anthology coming out in english um you know, but I never heard anything other than just like people being like, somebody should do that. And then eventually, you know, I assume somebody did and it didn't come out or whatever, because it's too obvious a project not to have been started by somebody. Yeah, that's my estimation of what probably happened. I mean, it feels like because it feels like someone would have been talking about it and trying to do it at some point. But like, I guess what what you're talking about there with like the lack of critical context for the rest of the infrarealists, it has a lot to do with the way translation gets commodified you know i mean i remember some of the headlines back in the day being like about oh lost bologna manuscript found sets you know record at you know the frankfurt uh, books fair or whatever well yeah i mean the, the frankfurt book fair is like a sort of stock literary stock market basically um and, you know and the things that go on there happen in a very rarefied air that most of the literary production in the world like doesn't ever come close to you know on the lower end you know, like when I edited a translation journal and when I was like sort of hustling manuscripts to journals like that, um, you, you know, a, a translator at the bottom rung of the, of the game's life is ruled entirely by rights, by copyright, by what you can get the rights to use and what you can't. And it's, you know, it's part of that life to be brokenhearted because you've worked your face off to do something really special and you can't get it past some some third cousin who own, of a dead person who owns the rights and is convinced that they're entitled to thousands of dollars like which you don't have and you can't explain the lack of for example or while you're working your face off somebody with you know a better economic situation and more leisure time or some other like sort of advantage comes through and does the routine, you know, does the manuscript and makes a contract for it or gets it out while you're working on it. Or sometimes you're just unaware of the fact that people have done things already and you get really excited about them and, you know, then find out that there's nothing. So, you, you know, you just, you, you build these sandcastles that are destroyed by the waves like over and over and over again. And it's really difficult. And I think it affects the, the way that literary translation is produced in this country like, by, like a great deal. And it seems to be the one part of the game that nobody really wants to talk about, you know. And and there is, there's so much money coming from the top down in that in that part of the game, um, through NGOs and through government foundations and grants from foreign governments from all over the world and state agencies and so on and so forth. But the like, you know, the grind in the translation minds is something that like very few people talk about. But if you get three or four translators together. It's like any other group of workers in the world. The horror stories just start coming out, and they're all like this. They're all like, oh, it was, blah. you know, and then writes issues, and everybody at the table is like, oh man, you miss a beat, and then somebody else tells one. It's you can make country songs out of it. Yeah, and uh, what like especially with uh, leftist literature and translation, it's 
you know, like you're saying, a lot of this funding is top down and most of it is coming more or less from, from states, um, either from states trying to translate their works into English, like, you know, France maybe does it. And a lot of European, a lot of European countries support their culture that way by trying to get translations into English or the U S government or, you know, some nonprofit, like you're saying, um, decide to fund translations and you know that that leads to very specific kinds of translations being done into English and a group like the Inferrealists which you know they're, they're, they're all leftists very 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 obviously um, you could see why maybe they wouldn't wouldn't have gotten that support well right but then on the you know on the other hand uh, and so, somewhere in some essay I like I have I, there's that I wrote back in the day there's also this observation which is you know I like I've had that thought myself and then realized that I like I possess lots and lots of books by European leftists uh, be they, be they theory or you know various kinds of novels and and plays and poems and things like that um, so I think that like another another sort of facet in the reception of inferrealism in the United States is just simply like you know, racism against Latinx people, full stop, um, which is a very long historical and cultural problem in the United States. And I, like, it's particularly obvious uh, when you look at the history of, you, you know, Latin American, for lack of a better term, literature, as told by the United States, you know, somehow every movement that comes into being south of the Rio Grande is a, is held to be a copy or an imitation of something that appears in Europe. Um, you know, in the case of stridentism from Mexico in the twenties, uh, that's particularly like overt. Uh, they're held to be just directly derivative of futurism. But if you stop and look at it for a second and compare it to the other avant-garde literatures of its day, it's no more or less derivative of futurism than anything else is, such as Dadaism or any other European movement. Uh, that you can speak of, like Russian futurism, which is r roughly concurrent as well. Um, so there's this sort of persistent strain of uh, anti-Latinx racism in the critical literature, like that goes back a very long time and is like very not directly overt per se, but which definitely colors the intellectual history of Latin America in the in Anglophone like culture as more or less inferior, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I mean, that that also leads to the lack of critical context you were talking about earlier, because, like, you mentioned stridentism, and there were, you know, maybe you could talk about some of the other movements that were going on at the time that um, the infrarealists were in conversation with throughout Central and South America, the Spanish-speaking world there. Well, the infrarealists come about, like, in the mid-70s, really, and they come at the end of... Not quite exactly at the end of, but they're like a good stopping point for a history of a kind of poetry that sort of flourishes in Latin America through most of the 20th century after Ruben Dario. Um, you know, and there's basically avant-gardist movements starting in the 20s uh, in most of the countries in Latin America. Um, Borges was involved with a, such a group in Argentina. Uh, Vallejo, Cesar Vallejo was involved with like similar groups uh, in Peru. Um, you know, so there was a sort of an early way, like a first wave of Latin American avant-gardism in the twenties, leading up to the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, you have another big wave of it that is 
more of the groups that were directly cited by the infurealists in the, the two manifestos that I sent you translations of. Um, and in that case, you're talking, you know, about nothingism in Colombia, uh, hora cero, zero hour in Peru, and el techo de la ballena from Venezuela, pretty much in that order. Now, hora cero is really important, particularly to Mariana Santiago, but the the sort of poster child for being like a badass sort of like insane leftist poet uh, in the 50s was Gonzalo Arango from Colombia, who was the sort of lead figure in nothingism. Um, you know, he had a sort of star, star power that I think a lot of the other the people in the other group sort of lacked. Um, and nothingism was absolutely fucking wild. There was a a guy in the group who changed his name to as X504, um, that, and that was just dude's name. He signed all those poems like that. There were a bunch of a bunch of really interesting sort of poets who would be familiar to somebody who liked New York school writers or sort of liked beat writers or was sort of into surrealism. Like a lot of this stuff was varying degrees of beatnik shit, New York school shit, uh, surrealism, Dadaism, and then like sort of whatever kind of leftist or insurrectionary politics were laying around in the individual country uh, where they happen to be happening. Um, and, you know, in Colombia, it's more against bourgeois society and the Catholic Church. In Peru, it takes on these elements of indigenous struggles um, and you know, like people of African descent struggles there. And in Mexico, it's uh, this sort of squalid urban class thing that is like very much uh, in a sort of angry argument with the um, the great empire to the north. Right, and I mean now, like you, you mentioned like the a lot of the writing, like a lot of the influences for this writing are like very recognizable. I think to uh, most people, most people in the English speaking world, whether it's the Beast in New York School or surrealism. And like when you read Mario Santiago's work, like um, the the influences of you know like the New York School, the Beats, um, surrealism, uh, situationism, all this like there's all this really interesting stuff like very clearly coursing through this work in a way that I think like demands a, like a lot of critical attention. It's it's very it's, it's very good. I mean, I have a collected uh, Cesar Vallejo in Spanish. That's like a, a nice critical academic edition that I bought in a fancy bookstore for like 50 bucks. Uh, and it's footnoted to within an inch of your sanity, you know, and like, it's about a 500 page book that's just overwhelmingly critical notes and glosses of previous manuscripts and yada, yada, Mario Santiago's work will easily sustain that kind of attention. And I can only assume that it will eventually get it, at least in the Academy in Mexico. Um, you know, cause the guy produced a tremendous amount of poems like when his collected was being put together i heard they had over a thousand pages of poems like after several cuts not to not to interrupt real quick but did that ever come out in spanish his uh, mario santiago collected uh there is a large selected which is called jete de santo uh which i've had for quite a while that came out uh it was edited by his ex-wife uh and one of his friends uh I, I think there's also another book that is uh more widely available I have the name of which escapes me 
that was also done by the same two people later that has other stuff in it. But in terms of a large sort of like career spanning, proper scholarly annotated collected, no, nothing like that has come out yet that I'm aware of. Yeah, but but to get back to it, like what kind of, I mean, like why would you say like Mario Santiago deserves that that critical treatment? Well, I think that his just at the level of like Spanish prosody or or poetics or whatever, I think his contribution is quite significant. I mean, he's in my, to my you know to my mind, he's sort of the Mexican poet of the second half of the twentieth century. He's in the middle of the, of this incredibly large city making this very interesting like journey as a writer through it and keeping really meticulous notes of it like to the exclusion of all else really and there are like i have photographs on my hard drive and there are probably still floating around on the internet of like he would just write poems over the texts of other books you know and a lot of the stuff that's in the savage detectives it seems really outre like the reading in the shower that shit is all true that's one of my favorite scenes yeah, no, that shit, like, that shit, like, you know, I've, I've heard from three different people that that shit was true. And I have no real reason to doubt it. Um, but, like, the, you know, so all of that kind of stuff notwithstanding, like, I think that his, he, there is, a like, a sort of, a use of rhythm and form and rhyme and of neologism and, a really interesting way of taking images and metaphors and mixing them up and also just a use of, of the plastic qualities of the way verbs and nouns work in Spanish, all of which are really significant um, in, in his work. Um, in particular, once he's sort of out of the like early like apprenticeship phase, when the poems start to take on some serious length, uh, like they are really astonishing hypnotic little pieces of work. And are as good as anything like, that you might compare them to by people like Nestor Perlonger or Osvaldo Lamborghini or any of the other significant Spanish language poets of that period of the you know the seventies and eighties. One thing that really stuck out to me in advice from one Marx disciple to one Heidegger fanatic was just the the repetition and the way he used the number one throughout it. It just I don't know. It is one of those things that I I read and I was just like, there's a lot going on here and this is the kind of thing you could literally write, you know, a, a significantly, a, a, an essay of significant length on. And it, and that's just one thing. Well, the thing with the, 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 for people who haven't seen the text, like what uh, Roy's referring to is that Mario Santiago uses the numeral one a lot. He uses numerals in general, but he uses the numeral one a lot. And in particular in Spanish, that is like a very, that reads the same way as if you had used the non-numerical article there. Um, it's just a, like a sort of visual trick of Spanish that you can use a, the digit one and have it scan exactly the same as if it were not a numeral. Um, so to use a numeral there, like I've had kind of, like I had drinks with Cole one night and we talked about this problem because it's like the big problem in translating Mario is that he uses this trick so much that virtually any time that you would use the the article a hyphen an an like the you know the whatever that is the not indefinite article i don't remember but anytime you would use that mario's got the number one and you basically have to decide when to keep it and when to throw it away and it's almost always a problem in the line every time you encounter it because it reads so differently in english than it does in spanish 
Um, it's yeah, it's a very interesting problem. But there's tons of stuff like that. There are he just invents verbs. He uses in like words in dialects like Nahuatl, like you know Indian languages like Nahuatl to make verbs in Spanish out of one time and it's the only time anybody's ever done it and you can't like I remember just like driving myself insane trying to run down the meanings of of certain very elusive things uh while translating Mario because it you know and it would turn out to be some obscure reference to something um you know but the guy's command of his material is like total and you know the the conversations I had with his brother, his brother talked about like what a monstrous reader he was, like how much he would just spend in a day reading from the time he was a little boy all through his life. And that, you know, the people who knew him when he was in his thirties and early forties all report that too, that he was just, you know, he would just read all the time. Um, and you know, you can see that erudition in the work. It's, he's got a real, I would, you know, back in the day, I used to compare him to Frank O'Hara a lot on the grounds that they were both pretty much capable of writing a pretty significant poem at any point in the day, um, you know, and that it was like a sort of, that they both sort of practiced a manner of being a poet that was more immediate than something like more retired and making notes and taking them somewhere and revising them and revising them and revising them, um, O'Hara and Santiago both seem to have had the ability to just like randomly sit down in rooms with people in them and produce fairly significant things more or less on the spur of the, of the moment without really needing to revise them very much. And that's a, kind of a hell of a trick, like full stop, really. That I mean, that you see that in the Savage Detectives when you read it. But I guess something else I, I wanted to mention, too, and talk about is like the way and I mean, this is ultimately how Mario Santiago died was you know he was someone who constantly also walked around mexico city and i guess like you know for i just talked to dom about george oppen and there's a lot of similarities there between how um not even similarities but like you know you could make a strong case that um someone like mario santiago is continuing the work of george oppen in really interesting ways and i guess you know like thinking about that sort of leftist tradition is really it's really interesting to do for someone writing in Mexico City like that and walking walking through it every day. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the guy was basically unemployable past a certain point of his life. He just sort of didn't even really try anymore. So he was, a lot of the times he was walking around, like, you know, very peripatetically, like, you know, as a way of getting from point A to point B, but also because he didn't really have, like, a place to just hang out on his own a lot. Um, you know, he was, the night that he was killed, he was at, he had been out for two or three days in a row walking because things had been kind of like unpleasant where he was. Um, and you know, he was hit by a car in the dark and it was like several days before anybody thought to check the morgue. Um, you know, because he, you know, he would be in the wind like that fairly often. Um, you know, and like, one of the infrarealists that I corresponded with a lot told me straight up at one point that the guy was sometimes really difficult to, to be around because he was essentially monomaniacal about about the writing and about the poetry, and he really didn't have the capacity past a certain point in his life to do a lot else than focus on that. Um, and it put strains on his social relationships as a result. Um, you know, so yeah, it's a really, like, 
he's in a really interesting case of like a very total devotion to the vocation, like really at any expense, more or less. Um, you know, and and in no way like even marginally interested in pursuing any other sort of course of or manner of being a writer. You know, this wasn't somebody who was like knocking on the door of big publishing trying to get in up until the last minute. This was somebody who basically decided that that was bullshit and he didn't want to come to their party anyway when he was 22 or 23 years old and then lived and wrote for another 20 years, um, you know. And was essentially like in, in, in sort of postmodern like lit crit terms, essentially a coterie poet to a group of twelve or fifteen people in Mexico City, uh, who sort of expanded and contracted over the course of that time. Yeah, and I, and I mean this might be I I think I alluded it, alluded to this on a podcast with someone else. Uh, I think it was Kevin, and we, I mentioned you know the infrarealist um, practice of reading in bars and restaurants, like you said, and. They did that to the extent, well, I wouldn't say they did it at the expense of publishing, but they just focused on other things. So they didn't, most of them didn't really publish a ton in their life, in their lives. And I, and I think, um, like, it's interesting to, like, to think about how, how they went about that, that sort of hostility to publishing you mentioned earlier. Well, and the big and most obvious thing is the the differential between the re amount of readings they did and the amount of publishing that was done. You know, like at some point, I made the observation that it was that like probably literally thousands of readings and a couple of dozen print publications. Mario himself had two books out in his own lifetime, and they were both relatively small. Um, you know, I mean, like some of these guys kind of thought Roberto was a little bit of a chump when he started writing novels. You know, they didn't really appreciate the shift um you know and there was a group of them that had been like in mexico city with mario all through the 80s you know after roberto had gone to europe and not returned who were you know like they were like katemic mendez was probably like the, the the most significant poetically member of this group because he is a really significant writer and somebody who deserves a lot more attention um you know but like him mario the altamirano brothers the very real P.L. Davina, who is still alive uh, and I believe lives in Europe still. Um, and, you know, these guys hung out and wrote poems and, like, sort of were, like, quite committed to the premise of, you know, what they were trying to do, which was basically, like, have a poetic community that was, like, self-sustaining and in which the poetry functioned as something other than what they would have probably described as commodities, although that might be an imprecise term in the modern era. Um, you know, and when Roberto started, like, making the most literary commodity thing in the whole world, novels, out of it, um, some of them were pissed off and stayed pissed and probably are still pissed. Yeah, well, this might be a, a good moment, too, because you, I read a few translations of both the manifestos that you... Well, so you sent me a couple... Um, translations of both the Inferialist Manifestos and some of the poetry of the other members of the group. And, you know, what, what, what you'd sent me that you translated was all, was all also very good. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that as like a broader context, I think, in which, you know, you know Bolaño wrote and in, in which Mario Santiago wrote. And it doesn't seem like that, that has really happened yet. 
Well, no, and I don't think that most of the Anglo literati have copped even now to the fact that inforealism is actually a style. Um, and like once you get your head around that and you look at Mario in particular, it becomes really apparent like, oh, and like it, it, that's sort of required to, to really get your head around what Bolaño is doing with his poems as well, because without it, especially without that idea of inforealism as a style and Roberto's poems as an example of it, you, what you have, especially in English, are just these sort of very flat seeming discursive, descriptive kind of poems without a lot of shock or pizzazz to them. Um, whereas in Spanish, they're like, you know, they're very sort of low key, like controlled executions of a style that in Mario Santiago was turned all the way up to 12, all the way across the board. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that that really makes sense. Like, to me, a lot of this made sense after having read Mario Santiago, especially and again, this is because of the limits of, you know, English translations, both the commune editions, one that you can read for free on communeeditions.com <laughs> and um, the wave books one, uh, which, which we mentioned before the advice to advice from one disciple of Marx to one Heidegger fanatic. And like, you know, having, having read that, it, it becomes clear that, you know, like you said, inforealism was a style and it's once you once you like recognize it it's it's very recognizable the way you know like the new york school is well right and it's also you know if you compare it to other sort of mexican poets from the 70s especially especially octavio paz who was kind of a bet noir for a lot of these kids um you know you see the differences really alertly it's a very like sort of like a not unlike Iggy and the Stooges aesthetically kind of situation, really. And, um, you know, it's the comfort that they have with some similar things, like particularly the Beats. And they were all big Bukowski fans. Like all these kids all loved Bukowski and Philip K. Dick, like tremendously. Um, and, you know, and all that kind of shit, like shit like the Doors and stuff. You know, I mean, it's really like the elements of a sort of like proto- like a sort of proto-punk scene are sort of there just lying around anyway. Um, and, you know, like the the collected, the sort of selected Mario that came out, the Hate of the Santa book I was talking about earlier, like through 50, any, pick any 15 pages in that and run through them and just keep track of the cultural references that are being thrown around. And it's like this really amusing, like, you're, it's incredibly likely that you're going to find John Coltrane... Wilhelm Reich and, you know, Jim Morrison and the Doors all crammed into the same line of a poem somewhere at some point. Yeah. And like, so going, I guess, like zooming out a bit from this, you know, you have Bolaño eventually comes in and writes the Savage Detectives about about this scene. And like you said, you know, this was a very small insular and in, well, not insular necessarily, but very combative scene that mostly had that had far more friends than enemies and you know Bolaño comes around along and you know so to a certain extent this isn't his fault that the savage detectives blew up the way it did but now you know there's there's this novel there's this huge globe like global phenomenon that is describing their lives in a lot of detail well right and the i think the important thing to remember is that like it blew up basically right when mario died um, 
you know, it, the two events happened basically simultaneously. Um, so for the, you know, the people in Mexico who were dealing with this immense sort of tragic and totally unnecessary loss of the, a person who was far and away the sort of like central figure in the group through its entire existence, um, that happened and then this novel comes out and you know maybe not even the novel per se so much as the reception of the novel within the like spanish-speaking official culture as the inferrealists would always have seen it um you know i think that there was a lot of anger and i think there was a lot of like overt feelings of having been sold out and betrayed um you know it was really like when I met up with Mario's brother in New York, he was still visibly upset by it. Like year that many years later, it was still we talked about it at some length, and it was still quite difficult for him to to have the conversation and to like consider possibilities that were maybe like not Roberto was a son of a bitch um, as explanations for it, you know. And I think that the timing of it was probably the most unfortunate part of the whole story um, because you know otherwise like even if Mario like had like had passed anyway um, it might have been an opportunity for some of these people to get you know legitimate literary attention that they could richly deserve for the first time in their lives but by that point they were like Contemic died not long after that um, you know and the major sort of people from the, the old days that are left and are still sort of active in it are mostly Edgar Altamirano, more or less, uh, with one or two other people who are sort of like, will answer emails or whatever, but aren't still out doing readings as inferiorists. I just wanted to, I guess, ask for, so like, you know, the, it really is like, a lot of it is the timing of it, but it, there really is, a, there really is no other way to look at it to some degree than, you know, Bolaño snitched on them. I mean, it's not it's not an unvalid point of view, really. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, it's essentially my point of view, more or less, you know, and like, I think that it's perfectly possible to get inside Roberto's logic at that point and understand like why that would have seemed like an acceptable thing to do to him uh, or whatever. But like, you know, I mean, it's also like kind of difficult to look at a situation where this enormous cottage industry sprung up around this like act of you know writing this romantic clef about your friends who not, none of whom really at the time of writing were dead yet um you know and there was you know there were hurt feelings there are still hurt feelings there are probably probably like permanently hurt feelings in in and around inferior circles over it yeah and it, and it really makes sense that that would have been the case given and i also like especially given the reception like like you said like it had an official spanish culture and, and an official u.s culture and you know i think you have to wonder how those audiences are reading this book about a group of you know very combative leftist poets who for the most part live in live in squalor and read books in the shower well and also like you know, we're relative at, you know, at the same time, we're sort of relatively straightforward and like sort of normal people like going about their daily lives while also doing all of these other things. I, you know, I, I recall early in my correspondence with Edgar Altamirano, him sort of 
maybe even literally saying like i don't mean to disappoint you but like all we sort of did was just sort of walk around or whatever you know and like i think that there was a sort of deliberate mythologization of the group and of, of its members on Bolaño's part that is inter an interesting thing to to examine both from the the standpoint of what he was trying to do but also from the standpoint of what effect it had on the people portrayed but also like you know in the minds of the reader and especially as like an artifact of imperial culture as it is translated into the english and distributed in the united states um you know and it becomes and it, uh, you know i don't know like i think about it a lot i don't know if i'm really re ready to sit here and like use nouns to talk about it but it is certainly an interesting phenomenon yeah it's one of those things that i guess feels kind of unfinished in a lot of ways both because mario santiago died so young and before the craze really hit and bolaño again he he died also relatively young and it just you know it it feels like you know like a lot of bolaño's novels it feels it feels unfinished well right and I, you know this sort of is brings us back to the question of the history like because the history that bolaño was talking about is the sort of political history of the 20th century left in Latin America, and it is a permanently unfinished history, like for reasons that are perfectly obvious, because those people were destroyed individually and physically, they were murdered, and their organizations were destroyed, and there was there were mass graves, and there was repression, and, you know, like everything that you can associate with the sort of classic era of Operation Condor and Pinochet and all, the, all that murderous bullshit. Um, you know, and like a lot of the politics that like govern the reception of the literary work um, are also conditioning the like the reception of the imperial relationship the United States has to that place and those people and as the authors of all of that murder and so on. Um, so it's really difficult to imagine like how we could possibly have a completed conversation about this stuff under capitalism because the end of the story is the indictment of capitalism for this horrifying series of crimes against humanity in that region that goes back as far as anybody can remember. And I think something good to loop back to is like you mentioned the first book you read from Bologna was The Amulet, which if I'm remembering correctly opens with the 1968 student massacre. Like how do you how do you read that book now? Oh, that book is really interesting because it opens with that massacre and it closes with this sort of dream image that Algilio is having of these singing children marching into an abyss that is like sort of one of the key symbolic images of Bolaño's entire sort of work in my like that that image has always stuck in my head um, as indicative of the larger story that he's telling. <clears throat> you know, I, but I think the important thing to remember is that the abyss is something that we, like the United States, created in collaboration with the right wing in those places. Um, you know, it's not. Yeah, you know, in the in the United States version of the of this history, it is like some mysterious thing that happens that like no one can you know it's like oh you know dictators and then that's the end of the conversation but i think like for everybody involved around bolaño and around the inferialists there was no ambiguity about it like they were well aware that it was the u.s and the u.s empire and their you know that 
that was the thing. Um, you know, and part of the reason why they critiqued the official culture so hard is because it was directly in a beneficial relationship with various elements of state power. And some of these governments were the governments that shot up the student protest in 68 in Mexico City and, you know, did all these other, like, horrifying things. Uh, so, you know, I think it's really difficult to, 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 for example, to critique a book like 2666, like, which is about, like, basically, like, the mass death at the U.S.-Mexico border um, without taking all this history into account. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of these, like, stories just end on ellipses right now, because, like, nobody's really interested in telling those stories. Yeah, and, and to be clear, too, Mario Santiago, in all likelihood, you know, was very near and heard the events in 68 of the massacre. And, you know, like with Bolaño in 2666, it's, it's very clear that the, the, the U.S. is being critiqued as sort of the central um, purveyor of all this violence. And, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to miss, but sometimes it feels like U.S. critics seem to walk right on by that. Well, I mean, a lot of them are reading from the alternate history, like the sort of official history of Latin American literature, which is just the history of the boom. Um, you know, and the boom, like for those who are unaware, are you are probably more aware than you realize, because if you think of Latin American literature as a phenomenon involving people like Garcia Marquez and Pablo Neruda as an author of love poems, full stop, uh, and early Julio Cortazar and one or two other people, um, you know, Mar Mario Vargas Llosa, uh, Carlos Fuentes, uh, you know, you're basically talking about a period in Latin American literature when it became intensely interesting to people in the English-speaking world, which in Spanish is called el boom, like B-O-O-M. It's the, the, the English word is the word that is used in Spanish to refer to this, which I think is, you know, as I repeatedly said, extremely revealing. Um, and, you know, like what you have there is what was actually being pushed in this country during the period when the inferiorists were active in writing, you know, and it was like the, the, the American conception of Neruda is a great example of this because, you know, Pablo Neruda in the United States is almost exclusively known as a writer of love poems. Um, and, you know, those few people who dig deep enough into his work to get to the information that he was a communist, um, may or may not go further and realize like the kind of communist he was and so on and so forth. Uh, Julio Cortazar is, you find his works in a fairly large profusion up to the point where he becomes like a seriously committed communist writer. Uh, you know, and his books take on explicit political overtones and they become very rare. And the ones that you can find tend to be the, le the less political of them. Um, you know, so there's this very like, there was this presentation in the English-speaking world of this very sanitized version of Latin American literature that was lots of magical realism and lots of folklorico kind of stuff, um, mo almost all of which is explicitly void of overt political content to speak of. And a great example of this, we've mentioned him a few times, is Octavio Paz and in the course of the Savage Detectives and maybe one of the other works that's in that extended universe, um, <laughs> they dunk extensively on the, on the anthology and joke about being left out of it, as I recall. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. 
I think that's a big, you know, a big part of how Latin American literature is perceived here. Like, and, you know, and it is a t basically like a totally alternate kind of like a imperially approved history of much of the literature of the continent during the same period we're talking about. And it sort of excises and removes from importance a lot of these leftist avant-garde movements and replaces them with these other much more acceptable things. And like that story would be the only story there was if it really weren't for Roberto having achieved like the kind of success that he did. Um, you know, it requires the excavation of all of this history out from under a layer of capitalist propaganda under which it was well intended to be left forever by the people who buried it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to me. It's it's almost comical in a way, the way Bolaño became this huge phenomenon and it was more or less by accident it seems and because um, I think a lot of people didn't quite understand what they were reading at first like you said um, it seems like most people perhaps thought the Savage Detectives was made up yeah or that it was just some poet gossip and it is high grade poet, go poet gossip of course uh, but it is also like a couple of other things as well um, one of which is like an extremely like po low-key political novel if you are able to get yourself into the headspace of the kind of literary culture that produced it. Um, yeah, I mean, is there, so is there anything else you wanted to talk about with respect to all this? Um, other than just briefly mentioning that Cole Heinowitz's translations of Mario Santiago are great and everybody should read them. Um, you know, not particularly. A lot of this work is like sort of floating around and could be, you know, picked up by eager young translators who are willing to do the rights hustle which is more than I can really bear. I think that, um, you know, some sort of further examination of how copyright works in the context of translation is probably a good idea in a print setting. I hope somebody beats me to it because I really don't want to have to do it. Um, but yeah, the over, like the overwhelming thing basically just being like the like intense quality of a lot of the like sort of really good inforealist writing, particularly uh, Mendez, who is not anywhere near as well known as he should be, especially now that Mario is getting a little bit of play. But Mario is quite, quite significant. Yeah, I just wanted to put in a plug too and say, you know, you like I said before, you can read some of Mario Santiago's writings for free on communeditions.com, translated by Cole Hinowitz, as you said. And, you know, I think it's also worth checking out the the book that Wave put out as well of Mario's translation of Mario's poetry and translation. Indeed, so quite a good book yeah well thank you so much for doing this again we'll have to you know find some more leftist latin american authors to talk about because there are so many that haven't quite got the attention they deserve three or four generations worth yeah pretty much there's a lot of a lot of really interesting other like ways of modeling literary production and community in the historical record that aren't being discussed in the united states uh, because we have a model that suits people uh, who apparently make money off it, which some of us don't. So, yeah, it is, um, you know, it is disheartening to see how translation works and to see what doesn't get translated. There are ways around it, but it sort of requires, you know, live. If you can get a hold of living authors whose work you really like and like create partnerships with them. That's far and away the best thing to do, because as long as they're alive, they're the only person who gets a say, um, at least up until they sell it to a publishing house or something like that. But 
you know, once people have passed on, then you have a lottery of, you know, maybe it'll be kids who understand what's going on. Maybe it'll be an ex-spouse who is really angry with this dead person. Maybe it'll be some distant relative who doesn't understand anything at all. And then there's essentially like a very difficult process of like negotiation that ensues that can go really awry really quickly because people don't really understand what each other are talking about. Um, so, you know, to the extent that you can, like, especially now that we have the internet and it works well, um, just read lots of journals from the languages that you speak and like, you know, make deals with the people that you like, like immediately. Don't wait, don't like get a huge manuscript together before you decide that you can get the rights to it or not. Cause you're going to wind up old and broken and bitter like me. All right. Well, it sounds like you could write your own savage detectives. But uh, I guess, you know, that is some really good advice about how to go about translating things that hopefully someone will listen to so we can get some, some more good leftist poetry into English. It would just be my dog playing with a stuffed monkey for like six or seven hours would be the whole book. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean look, that's, that's still a good book. Your dog's really cute. So I, I don't see a problem there. Highly cute dog. Well, anyway, Ray, thank you very much for having me.